you're all starting to have that uh, retreat glow. You may be in a state of misery, but your complexion is benefiting from this process. (coughs) So, tonight I'm going to talk on the seven factors of awakening. At home in the space I used to prepare talks and read things and research things and all of that. I've got this laminated chart on my wall. And some of you may have seen this. It's uh, the basic teachings of the Buddha from the perspective of early Buddhism. All the different lists and their definition So there's things on there like the 37 requisites of enlightenment and the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Aggregates and the Five Hindrances and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Five Spiritual Faculties and the uh, Paramis and all of this stuff. I sometimes think if it was arranged so it was like a Venn diagram with like lines shooting from one thing to another, it would be like this incredibly complex thing to explain. And this is uh, one of the very interesting things about the founder of this uh, school of practice, that the same being that had uh, a fully developed heart a lot of altruistic motivation and intention was able to go beyond his own um, learnings of what he had been taught. Was able to go beyond that and have this direct intuitive insight into how suffering is created and how it could be released. But then he had the problem of, well, how do you keep that going? How do you explain that understanding to not only people of the time, but people who would come afterwards? And what kind of form do you need to put that? And you may know from um, reading the suttas or a biography of the Buddha or listening to uh, some of the Jataka tales that Greg has been sharing with us, that part of the Buddhist teachings are carried in stories. You know, stories about the rampaging elephant that had been uh, goaded and uh, made intoxicated that was sent down the street to trample the Buddha and how the, the elephant knelt down at the Buddha's feet when it felt the power of the Buddha's metta. So there are many of those kinds of stories. And then there's this whole other part of how the Buddha transmitted the teachings that's very analytical, that involves lists and 
numbers of things and looks into causes and conditions and what kind of thing leads to what kind of thing and how it all fits together. And in some ways, if that, that part of the teaching wasn't present, I really <clears throat> doubt whether the liberative <clears throat> truth of the Buddha would have been preserved in the way that it has been with its power intact and still having the actual capacity to liberate the mind. <clears throat> because stories alone, although they're, they're inspirational and they're certainly a pointing to something, it's hard for them to carry the particulars. It's hard for them to carry the specifics, to carry the big picture. So we have this whole other dimension of the Buddhist teachings uh, that are very proto-scientific, you might even say, in how, it, how, in how they approach and explain how the mind wakes up. So just some things uh, to point out as you listen to this particular talk. You know, sometimes when this kind of talk is given that talks about um, progress or things opening or all the rest of it, the mind listens to it in a way where it goes, well, I'm not having that kind of experience. <laughs> right? You know, we had a beautiful talk um, last week on joy and a d- description of some, of some of what can happen when the mind is experiencing what's called rapture. And um, so if you're sitting there with your knee pain and you're going, well, you know, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> yeah, you're not seeing it. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that these things can't, can't develop and open for you as well. So there's a certain kind of way in which you got to keep your nerve, <laughs> right? You got to you got to uh, rely at least provisionally uh, on a certain kind of confidence in yourself and a baseline confidence in the practice, and run the test and see. Because everybody here has has touched on some version, whether it's a very embryonic version of these states or perhaps. Um, you've touched on some strong examples of these particular um, factors of mind. So it is already part of your experience at some level, and these things can be developed and opened further and uh, be experienced to uh, deeper and deeper degrees of depth. So... There is a well-known story about the Buddha, and I think Greg alluded to this a while back when he was talking about the Buddha being in the forest with his monks. And they're strolling about, mindfully, no doubt. (laughs) And the Buddha reaches down and he picks up a handful of leaves off the forest floor. And he says, "Uh, what do you think do you think, uh, compared to this handful of leaves in the forest, um, which is greater? And they said, well, the forest. 
he says, well, you know, just in the same kind of way, I know a lot more than I'm teaching you. What I'm teaching you compared to what I know is like the handful, this handful of leaves compared to all the leaves in the forest. In other words, he's saying, okay, I, I pared it down, I whittled it down, I put it into its essentials, and that's what I'm teaching you, the things that you need to know in order to, to liberate your heart and mind. So let's get on with this uh, conversation. I guess it's kind of a one-sided conversation, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, About the seven factors of awakening. So let's take a look at the title first, the seven factors of awakening. So define the word factor. Well, there's the mathematical meaning in, in a certain kind of way that's not so far off, but it's usually defined as an influence which contributes to a result or an outcome, better known as uh, something involved in making something happen. So you might say, well, you know, that accident at the cross uh, crossroads happened because you know the, it was rainy and the road was slippery, and then there was this other thing that there were leaves on top of the highway, and then it was dark, and you know, so the visibility wasn't good. You'd say all of those things are factors, right? They're all part of what contributed to making that circumstance or that situation as a totality the way that it was. So factor of awakening. And then look at the word awakening itself. You've got this idea to rouse or to begin something, to engender something, to kindle something, to make something happen. These seven are also called Sata Sambojanga in Pali. Sata means seven. And they're among the dhammas that we're encouraged to recognize when we're practicing with the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So we've talked about the four foundations of mindfulness before. You've got the first one is mindfulness of, of, the, bo- of the body, right? Uh, then you've got feeling tone or vedna, then you have mindfulness of, of the mind, and then the fourth is mindfulness of dhammas. And that can be a, a kind of vague uh, thing until you look into it. But what's being said there is these are particular areas where it's wise to incline the mind to recognize the presence of these particular things with mindfulness. So the the seven factors of awakening is one of those things. So this is like a double pointing. So these factors of mind can be developed and deployed in order to deepen understanding and move along the path of awakening. In the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a discourse called the Bhikkhu Sutta, where there's a bhikkhu, there's always a bhikkhu who asks these kinds of questions, you know. Venerable Sir, it is said, factors of enlightenment, factors of enlightenment. 
In what sense are they called factors of enlightenment? And the Buddha says, they lead to enlightenment, bhikkhu, therefore they're called factors of enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) So then in another uh, sutta, the Buddha says, thus they develop the factors of enlightenment based on solitude, on detachment, on cessation, and ending in deliverance. Again, ending in awakening. Namely, the enlightenment factors of mindfulness, investigation of phenomenon, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So all this is to say that these seven things in particular are highlighted as things to recognize, to train, and utilize in our inquiry into our own moment-to-moment experience. And in yet another sutta, the Buddha says directly about... uh, He's posing his own question to Ananda, who's his attendant. How, Ananda, are the four establishments of mindfulness developing and cultivated so they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? Whenever a monk dwells, contemplating the body in the body, on that occasion, unmuddled mindfulness is established. Unmuddled mindfulness has been established. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused. On that occasion, he develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness goes to fulfillment by development in the monk. Then then he goes on to the second of the seven factors of awakening. Dwelling thus mindfully meaning he's got mindfulness established now. He discriminates the phenomenon with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it. So then he's on to the second foundation, the second factor of awakening. And then he goes on from that, talking about energy, etc., etc. And that sutta goes through all four foundations in that same kind of way. So it's an important pointing, this thing. So as we uh, explore and uh, the mind, we develop these four foundations of mindfulness and in the same process cultivate the seven factors of awakening. And then liberative wisdom arises from that. And that, of course, is what actually frees the mind from delusion. So let's take a closer look at these seven and how they interact with each other. So let's take the first one, which is... (laughs) You're mentally answering the question. Mindfulness, sati, S-A-T-I. So have we explained to you what that is exactly? So it's a difficult word to explain simply, but I'm going to say a few things about it because it's a very key quality in the whole path. And its presence is the the proximate cause for the development of the other six factors. So the image is, it's a pillar uh, to be firmly founded or it's a guard for the six sense doors. And it's developed by careful attention 
to the four foundations of mindfulness. So the four foundations of mindfulness are the field of practice where mindfulness is developed and to which mindfulness attends. So let's describe what it is if possible. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, mindfulness clears the ground for insight into the nature of things by bringing into light phenomenon in the now. So now, present tense. The present moment, stripped of all subjective commentary, interpretations, and projections. So this suggests a kind of ultra-simple knowing of things just as they present themselves in real time. So one of the ways this is sometimes described is bare awareness or attention. In other words, a kind of knowing that doesn't elaborate on what's known but which registers and reflects in a non-preferential, mirror-like way what's present. So sometimes people will use the phrase choiceless awareness, um, which highlights the non-preferential receptivity of this quality. So finding the way of connecting with arising experience is really key to practice. So it's interesting because some of the foundational tasks for the whole thing happen right at the beginning and actually require the most effort. The beginning things, the the basic things, really require the most effort because at the beginning we have the least skill. Right? We have the least context, we have the least skill, we have the most hindrances, <laughs> we have the most wrong ideas about what we should be experiencing. So it's hardest there at the beginning. But one way that we can support the arising of mindfulness is strong perception. So perception is this quality of mind where when we, ha- when we have an experience or when an experience arises, very quickly and generally subconsciously uh, goes into the mental file drawer and pulls up a name of what it is. Cat, you know. Pain. Sadness. So strong perception, in other words, knowing what something is in real time, can be developed by using the labeling and noting process that Brian talked about last week. I think it was last week. And the character of sati, of mindfulness, is non-superficiality which steadies objects in our awareness. So when mindfulness is strong, connected and receptive, it will direct itself towards the object to see its characteristic or characteristics. So continuous sustained attention deepens practice. So that's been another part of the conversation that we've had at you, (laughs) which is (laughs) continuity, right? The emphasis on continuity how beneficial it is to keep that thread of mindfulness going through the day so there aren't too many breaks and you're, you don't, aren't faced with too many hard startups from zero again and again.
So mindfulness is the proximate cause for the arising of other moments of mindfulness. So if mindfulness is present, you've got a good thing going. It's easier to keep it going because the momentum is working with you. So the Buddha says that this quality, sati, is always useful, that you can't have too much of it. And as I mentioned previously, the development of the other six factors uh, rely on mindfulness being present. And that's part of the reason why it's cultivated first. And it will continue to grow and develop all the way through the practice. So awakening factor one, mindfulness. So the second is investigation. Dhamma Vikaya or Vichaya. So this one is often not explained very well or sometimes at all, which is unfortunate. But you could say that investigation is what mindfulness does when it's turned towards the particulars of objects arising in the mind stream. And it's developed by uh, skillful attention to both wholesome and unwholesome mind states. So other names or ways to summarize this particular mental factor includes investigation of states or investigation of phenomenon or discrimination of phenomena. And it's an interest into the particulars of what's being known and exploration of what is present in their specifics and into the arising and ceasing of the thing itself. So obviously, thinking about this pragmatically, you know, sometimes things come and go so fast, you're not going to be able to have them there long enough to do anything but, you know, recognize something went by in a blur. And then, maybe what the mind is noticing, uh, if it's in an investigative uh, state, is, wow, that thing just went by in a blur. (laughs) That's the observation, right? That's the investigation, went by in a blur, unrecognizable. Now the mind feels frustration or something, right? So they don't necessarily all stay around and stay still so you can like get in there and crank down the microscope. But you've had experiences also where things have been present for quite a while hanging out there, right? Say you have a, an emotional state arise. It's there for a while, and then this would be an opportunity to look at it in its particulars. So examples of how this noticing might take place would be things like, what's the predominant experience present here now? Or what what sense door is the main thing happening now? Is it body sensations or is it like uh, uh, thoughts? What is the Vedan of this? What's the feeling tone of this thing? 
Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? What's the mind's attitude or reaction in relationship to this experience? Is it, oh God, not that one again. I'm so sick of that. Yeah. That's within the range of things that can arise. So is the mind recognizing, okay, this is, this is aversion. You know, is the mind state wholesome or unwholesome or uh, neutral? As this is known, what happens to it and in it? You know, is, is the phenom weakening or strengthening as you attend to this? Has something else arisen? Has it seemingly changed into something else or has something else come in on top of it? You know, is there a view present in relationship to what's perceived? Is it like, oh my, if this is happening now, this is proof that, you know, my practice sucks and I might as well, you know, recognize that I'm a failure in this and everything else. Or, you know, whatever the mind tells itself. So, consider that this kind of noticing is always based on what's visible, right? So it's non-speculative. It's what can be perceived, what's within the range of perception to be perceived. So if it's not perceivable, you don't need to perceive it. Now I realize that is kind of a stupid thing to say. But don't we have this inclination of mind sometimes? Like, I can't perceive this, but I've got to perceive it. Well, why? 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 Can there be trust to just rest with what is perceivable? What What is known? What is manifesting in real time right then and there? So, this is more uh, reportorial, this investigation that's being discussed. So there's a really old TV show that still shows up occasionally in reruns. Um, and it's called uh, Dragnet, I think. And there's this uh, Sergeant Joe Friday of the LA Police Department. So they show him going out on various crime scene investigations and interviewing witnesses. And he goes with his sidekick, who's a much more pleasant individual. But anyway, Sergeant Joe Friday is always saying to witnesses as they go on and on and on, you know, speculatively or emotively about what they're experiencing, he always goes, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. So this investigation, this is just the facts, ma'am, right? It's like a, uh, somebody calling a soccer game or a football game. It's right, you know, he kicks, he scores, yeah. Oh, it's like, you know, right? It's like, just what's happening, not, oh, he made a really bad kick. You know, I wonder if his leg is hurt, you know? It's like, no, you're just like, <laughs> you're just with it, just with it. So you're attending with interest to what's happening and, the, and thus you see and notice things about what are, what's present. So 
you'll also notice that when investigation is present in the way that we mean it here, we're not choosing to investigate where it came from or in the sense of personal history narrative or trying to problem solve it. Right? So it, it is a natural thing to have psychological insight come up on retreat or have, you know, an intuitive flash like, oh yeah, I remember this, you know, this is a memory from, you know, when I was young and, you know, the state is, I can see the state is similar to something I experienced when I was a child and all that. That's all organic and not problematic at all. But we're not trying to dig into it, right? We're trying to keep the mind in a present tense relationship to what is immediately present and arising and take it on its own terms as much as possible. So an example of this, staying in real time with the particulars of what are present in a simple way might be noticing that the breath is change, has changing sensations within it and that it's not a steady state experience. Have you noticed this? that all in-breaths are not the same, that out-breaths can be different, that the breath can be long, it can be short, it can be rough, it can be smooth, it can be, right? It's not having the same experience all the time, even with some experience that's repetitive. So starting to see that, okay, the in-breath has different sensations in it. You know, first there's like cool, coolness and then it gets warmer and then, you know, then the sensations at the belly stop and then, right, this, 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 this. And starting to see those changing uh, experiences in real time is the beginning of uh, the seeing of anicca, and that seeing of anicca or impermanence will deepen and deepen in the course of the practice. But even to have that kind of simple noticing, you're already seeing something. So wisdom starts to arise here, including an understanding of how the body and mind condition each other, for instance. There's an unpleasant sound and then the body contracts and then an emotion arises of uh, not liking. Or there's good food at lunch and a feeling of contentment arises in the mind and then the body feels happy and at ease, right? So noticing how thoughts condition emotions, condition body states, condition thoughts, etc. So there's these runs of things that you start to be able to see as the mind attends in this interested investigative kind of way. And this is an early seeing of uh, conditioned arising. How things arise due to causes and conditions. So we start to uh, recognize that what we know moment to moment is a conditioned process that changes all the time and that we don't control it.
We don't control the arising of the sound. We don't control the organic arising of recoil in the body. We don't control the arising of the not like. So, and in seeing this, you're starting to see the three characteristics, right? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So by attending closely and continuously and in this way, things become interesting because you start to see more deeply into what is present. Which means that when the mind is interested, it attends more and more closely and then you hit new territory and start to be encouraged by the fact that it's new territory into continuing So this investigation calls for energy, but it also arouses it. So there are a lot of uh, different ways this can be explored with you in your practice meetings. So those of you who work with me probably have noticed that I ask you a lot of questions. So it's partly to help me understand what you're experiencing, but partially to help point you towards what investigation might look like in relationship to what you're actually having happen in practice. How you could investigate that same kind of thing. So the third of these steps is energy or effort in polyviria, courageous effort. And the Buddha talked a lot about this. So Does energy and effort ring a bell for anyone in terms of uh, its appearance on previous lists? So you might notice that it's one of the eightfold path factors, right? As is mindfulness. So this is an upstream endeavor that we have to wake up. And it requires that we commit ourselves completely. And the tricky part is, without demanding immediate results or specific experiences. So we're being called on to to really make an effort to establish mindfulness and apply it to the four foundations in an investigative kind of way without getting a lot of payback various points. So, how do you get to the point where you're willing to do that? And this is where touching into your own motivation, your own aspiration, and into whatever faith you have is important. So for some people, reflecting on the dangers of samsara, reflecting on the dangers of conditioned Uh, experience can be a motivator. For some people, awareness of our personal dukkha, our personal suffering, or the suffering of those close to us can be a powerful motivator that can generate energy. So we need to invest this energy and effort to make progress. But we can't demand particular outcomes because we don't have that kind of control. 
previous reference to not-self. So we have to keep going even though we may feel like we're very unskilled or even incompetent. (laughs) And so pulling on what's deepest and truest and most important for you can be a really skillful thing. Because if you look at how energy builds, the initiating kind of energy, which is sometimes called inceptive kind of energy, is the most uphill. Because we have to shake off lethargy and arouse initial enthusiasm. And it said this is the most difficult to generate and sustain because it's, quote unquote, like the taming of the restless wild buffalo. And like the wild buffalo, the taming of the mind is met with resistance. Have you noticed that? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to sit down. We're going to pay attention to this. We're going to keep coming back. And it's like, I don't think so. (laughs) You feel kind of schizophrenic sometimes. This is what we're going to do. I don't think so. (laughs) It's like, what's going on there? This alone should dispel the idea of the unified self, right? It's like, it's like, you're doing great, you're doing great. Who are you kidding? You know, <laughs> you suck. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the the first expenditure of energy is the most important, and you just gotta you just gotta dig in, and you gotta keep going. Then it it becomes more in the form of. Uh, persistence expression which propels the practice without slackening so then it's more about patience and integrity of effort where you keep cranking you know even if the hill is steep so those of you who ride bicycles or you know there's this set of gears called granny gears have you ever heard of these granny gears so you know, the fancy bicycles have all these different gears that can make it uh, more or less difficult to turn the pedals. So there are certain gears on the bike, you know, the lower numbers, you get down to like two, one, you know, they turn in fairly fast on the really steep grades, but it's not going to rapidly up the, up the ascent but you're still cranking away you're doing what you can to just keep it going and that's good practice and that's good biking but you just have to trust that and then inevitably there's uh, if one continues you get over the hump and energy continues to build and energy becomes invincible. It's just there. In other words, the experience, subjective experience is the power is on. The power is on, the power is available. There might, still might be sleepiness or anything, but the, the energy of the mind for practice is still there, no matter what the circumstances are. So the fourth of the seven factors is called rapture or joy. And Dawn uh, gave a talk that touched on that. Sometimes this is translated as rapt interest. Rapt interest. 
And in a certain kind of way, it's a fruit of the diligence of the practice that has come before, and in particular, the mind getting investigative about its experience. So this is an interesting feature of things, which is, like so many other things, you have to give it the love before it shows itself. So you have to give your real-time experience the dignity of your uh, full interested attention before it becomes interesting. (laughs) So one needs to be interested before things become interesting. So even if it's a fake it till you make it, interest is really key. And when rapture opens or becomes visible or blossoms, this could be described as a pleasurable interest in the object of meditation. And mindfulness strengthens here because the contact with the mind stream becomes more continuous. And rapture is one of those things that gradually builds up and involves energies of both the body and the mind. And as Dawn mentioned, this is a very uh, internalized, self-circulating kind of pleasure. It's the pleasure of inner experience. So the mind is not finding uh, its source of pleasure so much in outside objects and sense experiences, but rather it's finding it in its own inner world. So rapture can be supported by strong sila, moral conduct, as well as reflection on the three jewels, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, on the virtues of the Buddha or on an act of generosity or something else wholesome that you've done. And this kind of bliss can be present in the body, sometimes like goosebumps or tingling, or there can be shaking or feelings like floating or like there's been a lightning strike or waves and thrills that cascade through the body or feelings of being on a rocking boat or in a dropping elevator. (laughs) Kind of wild, isn't it? Like you're sitting there, you're totally quiet, you're totally still and all this stuff starts to happen. Um, These can be pleasant, but not inevitably, interestingly enough. Sometimes they can get a little wild. Like I can remember I had one once uh, where my teeth started chattering. That was not so much fun. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) So... Sometimes the mind can get overly fascinated with this kind of thing and then um, when you go in to see uh, the teacher then they have to bubble pop your enchantment. (laughs) So rapture is actually a sign that the practice has got some momentum going and the mind often has a lot of faith and confidence at this point and joy in the practice path. But there can be some restlessness in the body, too, as this stuff is happening. 
But if you continue to practice with diligence, including but not focusing on these as primary objects of awareness, things will start to move towards more calmness. And at this point, one generally wants to practice because it's interesting, it's really interesting. So unless uh, the yogi thinks that they've reached some kind of uh, awakening already, or they're so fascinated with the bells and whistles they get lost in them or lost in speculation or in making too much of it, it's actually a good practice uh, sign. So these things can be subtle, they can be gross, they can be occasional, they can, you can have a run of them where it's like this. And, you know, sometimes when this stuff starts to happen, people will go, oh, this is it, this is it, this is it, I'm getting close, I'm getting close, I can feel it, it's right around the corner, you know, maybe if I take this energy and I try to, you know, move it like this, or if I... if I was going to breathe like this, and maybe I can inflate it a little bit, and you know, like this is this is when the teacher has to have a conversation and ask you if you noted your desire to make something of this. All right, bring it back down, get real, okay, get grounded. It's just a phenomenon. Note it like you note everything else. So this often then calms down and starts to open into tranquility, which is the fifth of these factors of mind, uh, where the mind is more secluded and things are more subtle. So with this, there's a kind of ease and peace in the body and in the mind, and the mind is more still and calm. And the breath might become more and more subtle and might even disappear even though you're attending to it. So this is an interesting pointing in the direction of the importance of just working with what's visible. I I was paying attention to the breath. I was with it. I was with it. I I was with it. And then it became softer and softer and softer. And then all of a sudden I couldn't find it. And then I thought, uh-oh, the breath is gone. I've got to find the breath. And then I started <laughs> breathing so I could find the breath. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's gone for a reason, you know. Maybe that perception is just not a- online at present. Maybe you could just, like, be with what's there then. Well, what is there? It might be the mind going, where's the breath, where's the breath, where's the breath? Oh no, I've lost it, I've lost it. Oh, I'm going backwards, but maybe not. Maybe you're not going backwards. So here perception can become more subtle and actually unfamiliar, and time and space can seem uh, different too. The body can be soft and pliant and at ease and there can be a lot of tranquility there, which is pleasant, of course, and the sits can become longer. So sometimes people will say, you know, it was so calm and so peaceful and then, you know, I I was so surprised when the bell rang because, you know, it didn't seem like it was 45 minutes. 
or I decided to stay over and, and not do the walking period because there's so much ease in the mind. Some of the things that can support this tranquility is balanced walking meditation as well as associating with calm and contented people. Voila. <laughs> At least outwardly. Until you throw that oatmeal spoon, huh? So, when tranquility is strong, there's a pleasant kind of coolness in the mind which has the seeds of non-reactivity in it. So the system is cooled out here. It's pleasant, it's cooled out. Kind of like the fireworks of rapture have dimmed, now the system is cool, it's still finding its pleasure uh, in its internal experience, it's at ease. And because the mind is settled, it's easier to attend to more subtle meditation objects, including those which in the past may have been passed over as nothing is happening or disregarded because they have neutral Vedana. So the mind starts to recognize that these experiences are something, they're not nothing. So how many times have you had the thought, nothing is happening? How can that be possible? Something is happening. What might it be? Discontent with what's being <laughs> experienced is usually what's happening when we have the nothing is happening experience. There's some expectation that something, sometimes something inchoate, should be happening. And what's actually there is not up to specs. So it's just being disregarded. But when we get to this point of tranquility, that starts to change, start to see. So then we go on to concentration, which is also a step on the Eightfold Path, right? Wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise effort. And the Pali term for this is samadhi. So the Buddha talks a lot about concentration Thus, this is also an important cultivation of mind. And, you know, this is not like a pinched, contracted kind of concentration. I've got to concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. It's that the mind has let go of distraction. So you can see how this emerges out of tranquility, because this, the body-mind system is content. So it easily settles on it, the object of awareness. It's happy just to be there with it and to rest in it, clear knowing. The Buddha said, for one whose body is tranquil and who is happy, the mind is concentrated. And as Greg mentioned, the kind of concentration we're trying to de develop an insight practice is kanaka samadhi, meaning momentary concentration that retains the ability to notice changes of objects and change in objects. So in other words, it's, the attention is not fully absorbed in the object. And so it can 
still perceive the three characteristics even though there's deep concentration. Right? So it's there, in fact, is a way that this particular kind of concentration that's developed in insight practice is almost like a magnifying glass that can bring the mind very close into what's being known, into what's being observed, so that much more is perceived. And mindfulness at this stage is also greatly quickened. So the mind is very getting very fast and very agile as, as well as very calm and non-reactive. And then this opens into the last of these qualities of mind, these factors of mind, equanimity, known in Pali as upekka. upekka. And this can be described as a mind that is concentrated to the point where the hindrances have been suppressed, leading to contentment with what is present in a kind of non-disruptive, uh, immaterial okayness. So the mind becomes increasingly clear and able to be with all experiences in an even-handed kind of way. It's present with the continuous thread of changing objects, treating everything with a balanced attention without preference. So this is a long way from where the mind starts out in practice, where we're very reactive to Vedana. We're led around by the, the nose by these qualities of pleasantness or unpleasantness. So at, at this point, when equanimity uh, has been developed and is visible in practice, one of the things that you notice is the mind just opens to how it is. Unpleasant, unpleasant. There might be follow-on not liking, not liking, but the mind just goes with the not liking, not liking, wanting to get away with it, from it, wanting to get away from it, wanting to get away from it. If you were going to use a, a particular tone of voice in terms of how the notes would sound when equanimity is present, you'd say, matter of fact, calm, not liking, not liking, enjoying, enjoying, wanting to escape, wanting to escape, inspired, inspired. (laughs) So the mind is no longer reactive to the Vedana of arisings, but rather knows whatever arises in the same accepting way. And this in turn purifies mindfulness. So the mind here is centered in the present experience of the now and is much more free from expectations, desire for something different and discontent. So it's not pulled around by craving or repelled by aversion or lost. Instead it's more resting with what's arising and passing away. So if you look at the heart-mind then it's balanced and open and alert and attentive to any experience without favoritism. What comes and what's gone goes is seen in its specificity and as a generalized expression of the three characteristics. So faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration are all balanced. 
equipoise, steadiness, and stability are known. So there's a kind of equanimity called high equanimity, which is equanimity that's very strong. Um, That's the state that supports classical awakening experiences. So one might think kind of initially that that kind of thing might happen like during the rapture period where there's a lot of bells and whistles and that that's like a sign, the big bang or the big release or the whatever the mind imagines this might be might happen. But it's really when the mind has gotten clear, calm, steady, present, allowing, knowing, in an interesting kind of way, the state reminds me of metta. Metta when metta is practiced for all beings without exception, right? The ones you like, the ones you don't like, the ones that are pleasant, the ones that are disagreeable, the dear ones, the enemies, the difficult, And the mind has that same kind of allowing, connecting, accepting, stable, subtone of goodwill towards the whatever experiences arising. So they kind of feel the same to me in a different kind of way. Metta being warmer and equanimity being cool, but I can see they're closely associated. So just to point out here that you're all touching into some of these things. You may be touching them briefly and in an embryonic kind of way, but there are ways in which the mind is starting to open and is responding to the ways you're bringing your wholesome qualities of heart and mind to what arises as you practice here. And that's really uh, the key to it. Because we can't be more developed with these factors of mind than the conditions support. But we can take whatever development of these factors of mind that we have at present and work in a skillful way that deepens their presence, purifies them, makes them much stronger, that is onward leading and supports the opening of things that haven't opened yet. So the path is a a gradual awakening that involves cultivation of of the heart and mind and um, the faith piece is big. I started the talk in part by talking about how the, you know, the Buddha was so amazing and how he had all these heart things fully developed and how the analytical mind was also fully developed. But it's interesting that the Buddha always disclaimed any special status as more than human. So from his perspective, to be born human is a most 
favorable birth and that we have much good karma to be in a place like this doing this kind of practice and that we all have within us the seed which can be nurtured and which will in a lawful way grow into the tree of our our own uh, awakening if we nurture it in a devoted consistent kind of way it's lawful it will happen so somebody asked me a question along the lines of do I need to do these things or do they happen so it all, it all goes back to how the mind uses this capacity to attend to experience and the discernment of wholesome and unwholesome. All the rest beyond that is about skillfulness that you'll see for yourself and figure out as you run your, your own experiment. So that's good for now. So that may the many wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. be a support and a cause and a condition for our own awakening, for our development of heart and mind in the direction of liberation, for our own benefit and for that of all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.